So, as they make their way down to their seats, we get to start our, um, our sermon for the day. It's, we're in week, I don't even keep track anymore. Every week I say, just say what week you're in and then get started. And I always go, is it week two, week six? I don't know. We're in this series called On Earth As It Is In Heaven. Here's what matters. Um, what we've been learning throughout this series so far is it's really a practical effort to live out our faith. It's, it's not about learning, 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 and then eventually we'll be old enough and wise enough to do things. It's about doing, doing, doing. So as we grow and age and grow in wisdom, we're actually practiced up and we know how to do what God has called us to do. And so every week we've used the same illustrations about teaching a child to love to cook. I will say it one more time because every week someone goes, I hadn't thought of it that way. If you hand a child a cookbook and you say, go read this and come back to me, they will never love to cook. But if you invite them into the kitchen and you get their hands in the dough and you let them smell it and taste it and lick the spoon when the brownies go into the oven, then they learn to love it. And so faith is much the same where we want to invite each and every person into the doing of faith, not simply the learning of faith. They go hand in hand, but this is about how do we do on earth as it is in heaven? How do we enact what's happening in heaven here? How do we bring the kingdom and make it apparent here? So today, um, the question I'm asking that will be a little bit quizzical at first, a little bit, uh, a little interesting, is how do we become a church of the 167? 167. How do we become a church of the 167? And that will make sense later, but I'm not going to tell you yet. So we're going to start in the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to put it up on the screen for you there. And this is Nehemiah chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. And I'm going to skip a couple and read 10 and 11. So let me read here. The Bible says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, that I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. So Nehemiah is writing this, okay? So uh, one of my brothers came with certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there, remember it had been sacked, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. Verse four, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I might now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. So, so he hears about this destruction. He hears about the anguish of his people and his first response is uh, to go to God to ask God's glory to come down and to confess where they may have fallen short. So now verse 10. Verse 10 starts, They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of man. And he says, Now I was cupbearer to the king. Before we start breaking that down, we've got a little work to do. But first, um, let's talk about we last week and the week before, we kind of started this idea of becoming the city of God in the city of Bowling Green. What does it mean to become the city of God in the city of Bowling Green? How are you uh, in White House? How do you become the city of God in White House, the city of God in Perrysburg? How do we create the city of God right where we are? And what's interesting is, is the whole idea of cities, uh, especially in our modern culture, Cities are revered for one thing. We, we look at them as these places of innovation and energy and movement. 
they're wealth centers and cultural centers, and yet at the same time, we hold in the back of our minds this sort of suspicion about cities. That's, that's where the crime is higher, and it, just, it, gets a little, it gets a little scary in the city. What we need to remember is the city is God's invention. The city is God's invention. And if you read through your Bible, the last couple pages, you see that there's a new city. That God has his people coming back to a city that, that it isn't something we run from. It's something that God has created for a purpose. And Jerusalem, if you just want to know what that means, Jerusalem, peace. Jerusalem means the city of God's peace. And, and so even Jerusalem, which was this place of great glory and then great shame, and then it's destroyed and then it's rebuilt, and now even now it's being fought over, it's, God intended it to be the city of peace. We see uh, so many of our cities as these places of brokenness. Jesus says followers of Christ are to be a city on the hill. And yet we know that the city is where there is injustice and racism and restlessness and idolatry. It's where we find exhaustion and drugs and prostitution and just all the scary things that we warn our children about. No surprise. City is where people are. And people are where brokenness resides. And so anytime you have a greater and greater concentration of people, you will by nature have a greater and greater concentration of brokenness. In the 50s, to give you historical context, in the 50s, kind of everybody lived in the city, and then the interstate highway system was developed, and with it came the suburban boom. And everybody was able to drive a little further, and you could move out of the city, and so there was this great flight of people from the city who were trying to escape the ills of the city. We can run away from the crime and get away from the, the mess and the dirtiness, and we can just get out. And then they were sold a vision, 50s, 60s, 70s, of a, this idyllic land where you get to have a half an acre, and you have your own green lawn, and there are no problems to be seen. And anybody who's lived in the suburbs for any amount of time knows that the exact same problems exist. They're just better hidden because you have some space between the walls. But, but problems have followed people out. Where we were living in San Antonio, I would laugh because people would move out to a suburb, and then 10 years later, that suburb would get gobbled up by the same problems after people lived there, and then they would move out another one, and so people live an hour, two hours from the city center because they're running from the brokenness that they don't realize exists inside themselves. Everywhere people are is where marriages are wobbling, it's where kids are crumbling, it's where the school system is broken. That's everywhere because that's where people are. You walk into a college classroom as, as school gets started up again for the fall, you will feel soul-level turmoil in the room. As people are struggling with the brokenness that they're sitting in and the choices in front of them with life that's coming faster than we know what to do with it. This is not just in big cities. This is anywhere people exist. Nehemiah receives news that Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of peace, that Jerusalem has been destroyed, and that the people are living in disgrace, and he weeps for days. What's interesting about this, and I don't know exactly why it works this way, but, but Jerusalem was in this state for 140 years prior to Nehemiah hearing about it. I mean, they didn't have Twitter, so word didn't travel so fast, but odds are he knew that Jerusalem was in peril long before he was told and responded this way. 140 years, Jerusalem had been laying in some form of ruins. Like, like, perhaps it wasn't breaking news to him, but, but at some point the gravity of the situation in, in Jerusalem hits him. Like, have you driven around lately? Have you looked at the state of the American church? And most people kind of get a sense for this, but don't know it exactly. The American church is in great uh, turmoil. 
Did you know that 5,000 churches die in America every year? 5,000 churches a year close their doors never to open again. 80 to 90% of churches have declining attendance. 80 to 90%. So if you drive around BG, nine out of every 10 places you see, their attendance is going down, which leads to the 5,000 that close their door every year. Because as the people go, what's left? The gospel, the true gospel, a biblical worldview is preached in fewer of the ones that remain open every year. And this doesn't actually bother you every day. To see a church being boarded up or to go, hey, didn't they used to have a really lively congregation? It doesn't bother us every day, but at some point, like Nehemiah, sometimes it just hits us. And you see something, you feel something, you hear something, you go, oh, and you begin to grieve over it. So it hits Nehemiah. Like maybe God sort of wakes up his heart in this moment. In verse 3, it says, trouble and shame had fallen on the people of God. And he reacts like a gut punch has been delivered. It reduces him to weeping. And so the reaction he has is to leave his cushy job as the cupbearer to the king, which is a crazy job. What does the cupbearer do? The cupbearer delivers the cup to the king. And, And back in the day, if you wanted to get rid of a king, probably the best way to do it was to poison him. And so the cupbearer had the responsibility of ensuring that all that was served to the king was safe. And so the cupbearer would actually taste before the king did. And so delivering everything to the king, every meal to the king, every drink to the king, he would be the one to deliver it. Therefore, he had outsized influence like you wouldn't believe. He had to be trusted at a level you can't imagine. And then anytime he wanted, he could whisper whatever he wanted into the ear of the king. This is a job. And Nehemiah leaves it. He sees what's happening to his people and he walks away. He deeply sacrifices something that matters to him for something that matters greater. This would be like if the Secretary of State of, of the United States tomorrow really had a press release that he was going to be like a missionary in Papua New Guinea to serve a few people. He'd be like, but you have this big job with all this influence. What? I just feel like I need to do this. So as you keep reading in the book of Nehemiah, uh, chapter 2, he makes his way to the carnage of what's left in Jerusalem. Uh, the walls are down everywhere. And if we've talked about this in here before, that walls were a city's everything. It was security, it held in commerce, it kept culture. And so when the walls were down, the city was just, it was really in trouble. So he sees this, he takes kind of stock of everything. And then he rallies the people to help. And the line he uses is, let us rise up and build. He looks at the people that are left, this remnant, and he looks at them and he says, let us rise up and build. And he leads them to doing just that. In chapter 3, there's this detailed account of the builders doing the work. And so if you read chapter 3, it'll say that this family set the bolts and this family fixed the gates and this family laid the stones and these guys did this and those people did that. And it's just a line-by-line extrapolation of all the people that helped rebuild. In chapter 5, Nehemiah stops the oppression of the poor. As the walls go back up and security is reestablished, Nehemiah then focuses on the social side of the life. And he begins to stop the oppression of the poor that had happened when the city was broken. In chapter 6, the wall is finished and the people celebrate. And the regeneration of the city marches on. So a faithful Nehemiah leads his people to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And they reestablish the city of peace. And this is where we go, hey, cool story, bro. What does it have to do with me? We live in a society of abstraction and apathy. I once drove a car uh, that had uh, the permanent check engine light. Anybody ever had the permanent check engine light car? Yeah. Where it was always on, 
and you took it the first time it came on you panicked a little bit and I, I took it to the the mechanic and he goes there's nothing wrong with your car it's a faulty fuse or switch or something don't worry about it you know it, if something's wrong you'll see smoke and then you bring it back to me but nothing for you to worry about it also had a faulty uh, gas gauge which did this as you drove which was really really pretty comforting so when you'd rev the engine the gas would do this and you'd just be like whoa okay so you just kind of had to guess and there's another story about it for another time but I had this check engine light that was always on. What happens when the check engine light is on all the time? This warning light that's telling you something is wrong with your car fades into the background. Why would I care about a check engine light if it's on all the time? It's just, it's always on. And this is the culture we live in in general, where we live in the world of abstraction, where there is so much wrong that it's just the warning light that's always on, and we just kind of go, oh, well, whatever. And so there are thousands of people that are hungry in this region right now. There are a billion people right now that are hungry in the world. There are thousands of people within a 10-minute drive of here that would really like something to eat. The number of babies that we lose every year to abortion is stunning and mind-boggling. The number of thousands of people, mostly of color, that are wrongfully incarcerated in our midst is astounding. The injustice and the racism and the restlessness and the violence of our society is overwhelming, so we create abstractions. Thousands here, millions there. Uh, the bigger you make the number, the less it hurts you personally. In the case of the church, I just told you 5,000 churches a year will close their doors. Oh, well, that's, I guess that's kind of sad, but I don't know those. As long as it's not mine, we say. As long as it's not my brother in prison, as long as it's not my sister who's getting abused, as long as it's not my church that's closing, I guess it's okay. To which some might say, nice guilt trip again, but again, what does this have to do with me? I can't fix that stuff. And I would say, mm, you're right, you can't fix it all. But we have been called, like Nehemiah, to participate in God's redemptive work. We are called to build the city of God and the city of Bowling Green. And if that's true, then our job is to begin to look for the walls in our community that have been broken down. To look for the places where oppression has taken hold. To look for the places where injustice has a foothold. To look for those spots where the walls are still not where they're supposed to be and then act. And so as we look around, we, we actively look for holes in that wall. We actively look for places where the vulnerable are not being spoken for. We actively find places to advocate for those who have no voice. We put our passions and our skills and our gifts into play, and we get radical results. Because the path to reaching people is not in here. Someone asked me recently, how do I meet these people? You talk about these people, I hear about these people, my heart goes out to these people, I just don't know those people. It's easy in our world, too, to not know a whole lot of people that are poor or needy or vulnerable, people who need protection or our advocacy. How do I meet that person? My response was, what do you love? What are you good at? What's your passion? What's your hobby? And then I guarantee you we can find a spot. We can find a ministry. We can find a spot in the, in the community where that exact skill is needed. And in that skill and using that for someone else, you will meet those people. And so if your heart is for women who find themselves pregnant and don't know what to do about it, women who are struggling with the idea that this is going to take my whole life off track and I don't know how to, how to have a baby and have a career, have a baby and go to school. I don't know how to do this. And so my only options are abortion or paralyzation. If you have a heart for that woman, we have a place for you to serve. Bowling Green Pregnancy Center exists to help those women. And then the nest is opening this fall 
as a place to then watch their children after they have the baby. So they partner together. And so we not only have a place to say, you can have the baby and we'll help you, but we have a place to say, we'll watch the baby so you can continue your schooling. So if you care about women, we got a spot. If that's your passion, go plug in. The same is true with people who are handyman. We got uh, Habitat for Humanity is building houses, two houses in BG this year. If you can swing a hammer, awesome. Guess what? You're going to meet the family that is desperate for a place to call their own. When you meet their family, you're going to know their extended family. When you know their extended family, guess what? You're now going to know people who are poor and needy and vulnerable. And now you're in the network and you just keep going. When we use our skills and our passions and we get them out of this building and into that community, we naturally meet those who need them. Nehemiah went to Jerusalem. He sacrificed security of his job. He gave up power and comfort because he knew that the work was not as cupbearer to the king. The work was out there. As a growing church, the danger that we face is that we would build up in here, that we would focus our efforts in here, that even as we finish this renovation and we celebrate that tonight, we've got a member meeting at 6 o'clock, we're going to celebrate. The danger is that we're going to pat ourselves on the back and say, yeah, we did a great job. Let's keep focusing on making it a little bit nicer and a little bit better, as opposed to saying we did that so that we might be able to go out. Let me do some recent church history. In the 80s, uh, people picked up a, a way of ministry called revivalism. Revivalism uh, started in the 1800s with a minister named Finney, um, and that's a whole other thing. But in the 1980s, revivalism grew in America. This was the era of Billy Graham. Some people actually know who Billy Graham was still. So if you wanted to reach your friend, if you had a neighbor, a cousin, a lost person you know, and you wanted to get them in front of the gospel, you wouldn't, you wouldn't tell them yourself. You'd go, hey, come to this tent revival. Come to see Billy Graham with me. And there were the, all kinds of different flavors of these things, all different people that did it. And there was even stuff for women. There was specific stuff for men. What was that called? Promise keepers, where you could bring somebody to a big arena. I went to uh, 60,000 men in the Astrodome. Someone took me to promise keepers. And there's 60,000 dudes, and there's one guy on the stage, and they were like, see, I did this for you. And I'm like, I don't know what you did here. That's what you did. It was the 80s. It was the 90s. It was revival time. We're going to bring people into a big tent and let somebody, an expert, do the work. And what happened through that kind of 20 years of, of modern church history is we lost the personal impetus for evangelism. We began to see that it was the job of the professionals, and I just need to get them in front of the professionals. And so we had big mission-sending organizations. The International Mission Board sent 15, 20, 30,000 missionaries out. I don't have to know missionaries. I just have to know they're doing the work. We had big charities, and the charities got bigger and bigger and bigger. And what we had done for 20 years, we professionalized ministry so that people like you and me could sit back and go, well, we paid them to do it. I don't know. And what we know to be true is biblically, this just isn't real. You read Ephesians 4 and you see that every single one of us was created for a purpose. Every single one of us is a missionary and a minister. Every single one of us has a role in the body. And none of us are in the spot where we get to pay someone else to do ministry on our behalf. That system is long gone. The result of our 20 years of revivalism in the 80s and the 90s was that we started the decline of an active faith. And we see it now. It's starting to bear fruit where we go, I don't know how to activate certain whole generations because those generations, they're just pre-wired to just take them to the tent. And what that did unintentionally was created the idea that every church is its own tent. And this one hour on Sunday morning is the most important hour of the week where we get fed. It's where we invite people. I've actually had people come up to me and I say, how's that relationship with that person you were t praying for? 
And they said, well, I brought them to you and you didn't get them saved, so I don't know what to do. Oh, I missed the memo. Next time I'll get you. But that, that's something that we have in us. And even if it isn't on our lips, it's somewhere in our souls that some part of us is like, well, isn't that what this is for? And I would say, how's that working in the 40 years since that revivalism took back over? And there was great stuff that happened, and people got saved. And there's not to diminish what happened in Billy Graham's. Billy Graham, I would love to be Billy Graham. You want to give me a whole other revivalism that's going to happen, and we can do pitch a tent, and we can get millions of people into heaven? I'm all for that. So don't hear me say anything else. And yet, when we made the one hour on Sunday the most important hour of the week, what we did was we diminished all the others. And the result of it is we have thousands of churches closing every year. We have 80 to 90% of churches with declining attendance. We have even less attendance among the faithful. A study came out recently that the average faithful churchgoer who 10 years ago came to church three times a month now comes uh, 1.97 times a month, which is statistically accurate but physically impossible. So we're going to call it two. Which tells you the average faithful church attender, church member, comes to church 25 times a year which is fine. And yet, what we learn is that one-hour thing is even that's in decline because we're busy, because we're mobile, because we have a lot of other things going on. What's my point? The whole magic hour method of church is gone. So what I hope happens here on Sunday morning, I hope you learn, I hope you are inspired, I hope you feel fed, I hope you are motivated, I hope you are activated, I hope all that stuff happens in here, in an hour, on a Sunday. I hope you find community and relationship. I hope you get to fellowship and you make new, new bonds and, and together we go out arm in arm. And I hope that's really happening. We're working on that. But the mission of the church was never supposed to take place in here. This is a staging ground. The church is not something you attend. It is who you are. Our old pastor used to always say, you don't go to church. You are the church wherever you go. You don't go to church. You are the church wherever you go. And we just happen to gather here for an hour a Sunday. But you don't go to church. You are the church. And so you cannot stop and park it here and check the box and say, I did church this week. You are the church this week. What did you do with it? Which brings us to being a church of the 167. Has anybody heard of the Barkley Marathons? The Barkley Marathons. This is a documentary that was on Netflix for a while. It's on Amazon now if you have that. The Barkley Marathons, if you don't know what this is, to call it an ultra marathon would be to do it a, a terrible disservice. Now, there's a disclaimer that all the participants of the Barkley Marathons have to sign. And it says, quote, they sign this, if I am stupid enough to attempt the Barkley, I deserve to be held responsible for any result of that attempt to be it financial, physical, mental, or anything else. That's all they sign. This sort of uh, crazy eccentric gentleman invites all these people into the woods of Tennessee. Uh, I think 40 people a year get to do it. They pay $1.60 as a registration fee. They come from all over the world for the right to inflict incredible pain upon themselves. The Barkley Marathons is uh, 100 to 120 miles. He changes the course every year, so you can't ever really learn it. And it's done in five loops in the Tennessee mountains. And so you run a loop clockwise, and then you have to run the same loop counterclockwise. And each one's 20, 25 miles. There is 120,000 feet of elevation change if you were to finish the race. 120,000 feet. Not, I'm not saying that wrong. It's the exact equivalent of climbing Mount Everest and descending twice in the course of 120 miles. In 30 plus years, only 17 people have ever even finished. They, they call the three looper, the 60 mile run, they call that the fun run. And for most of these incredible 
uh, endurance trainers, the fun run is the accomplishment of a lifetime. They sacrifice a ton, they train, they prep. The physical toll of the race is mind-boggling. After each grueling 20-mile loop, they come back to this base camp, and the racers will then sit. They'll have a team with them, and you'll see them sit in a camp chair, and somebody's powdering and re-socking their feet, and somebody's just jamming food into their face to try to keep them uh, with enough calories. Some of them even take a 5-10 minute power nap. Basically, they come back to camp to get ready to go back out to do another punishing 20-25 mile loop in this hellscape that this guy created in the Tennessee mountains. They come back to camp to fuel, to heal, to strategize, to motivate, and then they get back out and chase the goal. When I watched the documentary for the first time, and yes, I've watched it multiple times, that little time between loops, that little 5-minute, 10-minute, 25-minute interval between a guy coming back bloody and bruised and exhausted and going back out bloody and bruised and exhausted, that little time looks like church to me. There are 168 hours in a week. We will be a church of the 167. So we have the option to be a church of the one, where we make this the thing, or we have an option to make this the base camp where we come and we motivate and we hug and we say, you can do it, and we cry and we pray and we fight and we claw and we go, you can do one more loop. And then we go back out and we take another 167 hours and we are the church wherever we go. This is the place where we fuel and we heal and we strategize and we motivate. This is when we tell you, you can do it. And it's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be fun, but you can do it. And then we go out together to the 167, chasing the goal of building the city of God and the city of Bowling Green. And so stone by stone, bolt by bolt, gate by gate, we begin to rebuild the walls of the city together. We will rise up and build. We are called to be a church of the 167. Unless you even get weary thinking about this kind of mission, it seems like a lot. Oh, I have a job. I have a family. I have stuff to do. I might have like 45 minutes a week I could give to this. It happened in Nehemiah too. He came back and he, they were with the people and the people began to be weary and the people began to, to really feel the weight of this rebuilding project. So much so that the enemies around the camp were starting to strategize and scheme so as to overtake them. So I skipped chapter 4 when I was summarizing Nehemiah earlier. The enemies are are coming closer and the the people that Nehemiah is there, they're building the walls but they're growing weary. And verse uh, 14 of chapter 4 says this. Nehemiah looked and arose and he said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them, the enemies who will come. Remember that the Lord who is great and awesome Remember him and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. When you're weary, when the enemy is lurking, when you're tired, when you say, really, again, we're going to do more? Nehemiah's advice to those who are feeling the weight of that burden of rebuilding the walls of the great city of peace, Nehemiah's word to them is, remember your Lord. And when you remember that he's fought for you, then remember that you are out there fighting not for yourself, but for your brothers and your sisters and for those who don't have a voice. Fight for justice, for family, for peace. Remember, church, Jesus. Wearied under the weight of agony in the garden. Saying, Father, if this is the only way, I'll do it. But man, I really hope there's another way. 
Weary under the weight of the cross, like a sheep led to slaughter, he didn't open his mouth. Jesus left his position at the side of the Father and came to rebuild the walls of our hearts and our souls. Jesus walked away from privilege and into the mess to fight for you and me. Jesus left behind his role at the right hand of the Father. See the picture? And came to the place where the walls were broken down. Came to the city where destruction was imminent. Came to a place of disgrace and abandonment. And then began to rebuild the walls, brick by brick, bolt by bolt, gate by gate. And then he left and he goes, now you, so as I did, you go and do likewise. So the call upon our lives to be the church of the 167 is let us rise up and build. Let each one of us figure out what it is we're good at, what it is I have a passion for. And then let's apply that out there. And if you're great at making bolts, make those bolts. And if you're great at hanging the gate, hang the gate. And if you can lug stone, lug stone. And not every job has the great glamour associated with it. But when it's all done, every single person who had a hand in doing it can look up and see, I was part of that. Let us come here on a Sunday to find strength and nourishment and relationship and hope. To remember that Jesus stopped at nothing to bring shalom back to us. So that we might look at the city that we live in and figure out how to bring shalom to it. How do I find peace for this place? So may we be a church of the 167. Actively seeking ways to fight for the needy, bring justice to the city, and rebuild the city of God here. Moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, for the rest of our lives. That is what we are called to and is what we will do. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, your example is clear. Your challenge is uh, even clearer. That you left comfort to come and save us in our mess, and you have called us to remember the mess that lies around us. Father, we aren't to run from a city because of its brokenness. We're to engage the city because of its brokenness. God, we're to use our talents. We know that. We're to use our skills. We know that. So I pray that you would give us uh, an awareness of a place to serve, an awareness of the need that exists, an awareness of the path to walk down so that we might use what you've given us in a way that uh, profoundly changes the world around us. Father, call us into your redemptive, regenerative work. Call us to shake off the falsehood of a one-hour church. And remind us that there are 167 hours a week that we can chase you with everything we have. Father, for those who are already weary, I pray that you would give endurance and courage. For those in here who are fighting a battle bigger than anyone else knows, God, I pray your presence would be real, that they would know they're never alone. God, for a community that loves you, Father, we pray that our efforts would be... uh, representative of that, that you would smile upon your children as we do our best to rebuild the city around us, to fill the walls, to patch the holes. Father, thank you for sending Jesus, who is the ultimate rebuilder. We find safety in him. We pray in his name. Amen.